Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 217, Halfdan's Ravaging of the North. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Robert, Jennifer, and Matt for signing up already. Also, while it's likely that she's not going to listen to this episode because she hears my voice too much already as it is, it's co-producer Z's birthday. Happy birthday, Z. Okay, we begin our story in Alt-Klut. Alt-Klut was an ancient British kingdom, and it could stretch itself back into Roman Britannia, and possibly even further. At the center of this kingdom was an old fortress on the River Clyde. The kingdom's name derived from the Brythonic name for the rock featured by this fortress. Alt-Klut, the Rock of the Clyde. This rock feature on the River Clyde probably defined the area for many of its people, and over time it likely came to define the people themselves. We've actually discussed the Kingdom of Aldclute in the past, though you might not remember it. We've talked about their conflicts with Dalriada, Pictland, and Northumbria. And like many kingdoms in Britain, it's been difficult to keep track of who they were fighting against and who they are allied with in the mosh pit of the Middle Ages. Over the course of their history, their list of allies and enemies would switch back and forth regularly. But over the decades and centuries, as Altclute appeared in our story in both the main show and in the Scott casts, it was clear that they were struggling. Their leadership structure was becoming increasingly problematic. Like Dalriada, Altclute was run through a system of clans and the internal conflicts caused by these clan-based politics made the kingdom vulnerable to outside influence. That problem only got worse as they entered the Viking Age, because make no mistake about it, our neighbors to the north were up to their necks in Vikings. For as bad as things were in the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, they were a dream compared to what the Picts, Britons, and Scots were dealing with. To add to the woes of Altclute, their sometimes ally and sometimes enemy of Pictland had recently united under a powerful king by the name of Kenneth MacAlpin. He appears to have been an extremely influential ruler, and under his rule, Pictland had grown in power. And this put Altclute in a tricky place, as powerful neighbors were always something to worry about in the Middle Ages. This worry didn't subside when Kenneth MacAlpin died his successors picked up right where he left off. And consequently, Pictland was now fully on the rise. And meanwhile, Altclute continued to struggle in the decades that followed. And then in 870, disaster struck. A massive Viking fleet launched from Ireland. Historian Michael Lynch argues that the impetus for this raid was none other than the new king of Pictland, Kenneth MacAlpin's son, King Constantine I. Lynch says that it was probably he who reached out to the Vikings of Ireland and suggested that they attack his southwestern neighbors in Altclute. And if that's true, it proved to be a masterstroke against the weakened kingdom. But whatever started it, whether it was their own idea or whether they are acting on behalf of the Picts, the fact remains that 200 Viking longships set sail and they headed straight for the Rock of the Clyde. Right 
for the heart of Altklut. The assault that followed was overwhelming, and the great fortress was completely besieged. But the rock was well built. It was designed for this sort of thing, so the fortress held, at least for a while. But that didn't mean that the people of Altklut were safe. After all, their kingdom still remained under siege. And for four long months, ships were being loaded down with treasure and slaves, and then ferried back to the slave markets of Dublin. The unhappy citizens of Altklut would have watched these ships sail off with their loved ones and neighbors, only to have those same ships return, seeking more plunder and more marketable slaves. The Vikings were so efficient in their operations that even the king of Altklut was captured and brought back to Dublin. He died soon after arriving. This British kingdom, which had been on the map since the days of Rome, had been fully brought to its knees. And shortly thereafter, King Constantine, Kenneth MacAlpin's son, began to exert control over the weakened kingdom. When we find records of this area after this event, we no longer see the Brythonic name Alt-Clut, the Rock of the Clyde. As early as 872, the people of that region were now being referred to by a new name, a Gaelic name. They had become the Strathclyde Britons, the Britons of the Clyde Valley. Even their capital ended up being renamed to Scottish Gaelic. It became Dumbarton, the Fort of the Britons. Now, whether this was a name that the people of Alt-Clute would have called themselves is anyone's guess. But whatever the case, Strathclyde stuck. And three years later, as the frosts of winter melted in the spring of 875, King Halfdan completed his preparations. His men were rested, and more importantly, they were hungry for conquest. So they loaded up their materials and headed north. They were bringing the sword to the Strathclyde Britons and the Picts. But why these guys on a rock on the River Clyde? They were likely weak and an easy target, but they were also pretty close to dead broke. Also, didn't he have bigger fish to fry? The last time we were told about Halfdan and his army, we learned that he camped on the River Tyne, and he settled in for winter. So he was literally a stone's throw away from the man who led a rebellion against him. War with King Rixiga of Bernicia seemed like it was all but a foregone conclusion. So why do we suddenly hear about him bringing war to Bernician's northern border instead? It's weird, and it's one of those turns in history that gives you pause. Halfdan was right on the border, and he'd been hanging out there all winter. If he wasn't going to fight Bernicia, why would he bother freezing his butt off out there on the Tyne? Why not hang out by the hearthfires of Jorvik instead? I mean, if Halfdan was on a date, this would be like him ending the night by walking the nice pretty girl home, getting invited upstairs for a coffee, and upon sitting down at her kitchen table, promptly making out with her roommate, Vincent. I mean, I can see the circumstances that might lead to that, but you'd expect that at least some part of the story was missing. And the evidence lies in the details. The records say that Halfdan was bringing war to Strathclyde and Pickland. But we're also told in the Chronicle that while he wintered on the Tyne, Halfdan, quote, subdued that land, end quote. 
Asser adds to that by pointing out that all of Northumbria was subject to him following the wintering on the Tyne. So Halfdan must have done something to convince King Rigsigat to stand down and submit to him, right? And interestingly, the record regarding this lacks warlike language. And while that isn't proof of anything on its own, its absence does raise an eyebrow. For example, does the submission and the lack of warlike language indicate that there is a brokered peace? By sitting on the Tyne, was that enough to spook Rigsiga and convince him that now was the time to swear fealty? Was there a demand of a Danegeld? It's hard to know exactly what was going on there, but given the lack of warlike language, and given the fact that King Rixiga continued to rule following this event, I'm giving the impression that Halfdan stared them down without engaging in a major military campaign into Bernicia. But Strathclyde and Pictland were a whole other story. They were going to get a fight, and a really long one. But why? Why spend a year fighting against Bernicia's northern neighbors, especially after Strathclyde had been stripped down to the baseboards only a handful of years earlier? Well, historian Sir Frank Stenton thought that this was pretty much a blunder on the part of Halfdan. He argued that Pictland and Strathclyde didn't have a great deal of wealth, thanks to all the Vikingers and wars amongst themselves, and so there really wouldn't have been a great deal of money to be made for Halfdan and his men. Stenton also argues that there wasn't any political advantage in subduing kingdoms so far away. And that is how we used to view this period in the record, as Halfdan's folly. But more and more, scholars are taking another look. And now, many think that Halfdan might have been trying to establish an imperium. Dominating Strathclyde and Pictland doesn't make any sense if you're just after treasure. However, if Halfdan was looking to connect the dots and establish a pan-Britannia empire that crossed the Irish Sea, Strathclyde and Pictland would suddenly become prime real estate. If you're trying to make sure that your slaves and trading vessels could easily travel to Dublin and elsewhere, you don't want them moving through hostile territory. You want them moving through your territory. And Wales for quite a while had been a non-starter for the Danes. Same with Cornwall. But this route, this might work. And it makes even more sense if you consider the amount of influence that the Vikings based in Ireland were able to place upon Strathclyde and Pictland. During this period, we see an increased number of Scandinavian-influenced place names in Strathclyde. And that suggests Scandinavian settlement. Specifically, scholars argue that the region was dealing with both Gaelic and Scandinavian settlers. Moreover, we've already talked about two kings of Dublin, Olaf the White and Ivor the Boneless, who fought in the lands that would become Scotland. They had already been doing this for a while, and it's very likely that Dublin and other Scandinavian Irish power bases were already starting to exert control over Strathclyde, just like Pictland was. And if Halfdan was looking to use his influence over Jorvik, Mercia, East Anglia, and Bernicia in order to expand into the north and eventually claim dominion over Dublin, well, that certainly sounds like a recipe for war. The old way of thinking would have us believe that Vikings were only about short-term plunder. And earlier scholars did approach the Vikings as a monolithic, singular culture that more or less looked like something out of Conan the Barbarian. 
But the truth is that these people were clever, and they weren't just thinking in the short term, and they were absolutely willing to fight against other Northmen if the situation called for it. And here's another element of this story that older historians seem to have forgotten. Do you remember the other famous alleged son of Ragnar, Ivor the Boneless? Well, he was a king of Dublin who held sway over large parts of Britain. And he died in Ireland only two years earlier. So what if the lineages are true? Or at least they correctly identified Ivor and Halfdan as brothers. Suddenly Halfdan's surge northwards starts to make a lot of sense. He was making war upon territories that had previously been dominated by the Northmen, and quite possibly Northmen under his brother's command. And once these lands submitted to him, he could just return to Jorvik, solidify his hold on his kingdom, after all, you don't want another Rick Siga leading a rebellion, and then he would be able to launch a campaign to recapture Dublin and claim that kingdom, which he had a blood right to. That certainly makes a lot more sense to me than a simple cash grab from the kingdom equivalent of your apartment in college. Now interestingly, we have an odd inclusion in the record that adds some color to what was likely happening with Bernicia. We're told that at the same time as Halfdan's campaign in the north and the submission of Bernicia, the monks of Lindisfarne decided to leave the monastery and go walking in search of a better spiritual home. And while packing, they brought their sacred relics and the corpse of St. Cuthbert. You might remember that several years earlier, the monks took Cuthbert out on a field trip, but eventually they returned to the monastery. Well, this time, they were leaving for good, and St. Cuthbert's post-mortem wandering would turn out to last over 200 years before he'd finally be laid to rest at Durham. Now, monks packing up their holy relics and dead saints wasn't a regular practice. Zombie pilgrimages were not a thing. So the fact that they left Lindisfarne at that precise moment suggests to many that something was going on in Bernicia. And the rest of the record point to a whole variety of things that might have placed too much pressure upon the monks. For example, if there was a Dane guild, King Rixiga would have gone looking for payment. And if the taxes were too stringent, that might have been cause for them to decide to relocate. There's also the possibility that the monks relocated in response to a raid. Because here's the thing. We know that Halfdan's army was moving into Pictland and Strathclyde, but we don't know how they were getting there. Traveling by longship would mean that they could move quickly up the coast. And it also meant that they could do a few raids as they traveled, provided, of course, that he had enough ships to accommodate his men and his provisions. So chances are, sailing was probably the preferred method. These were Northmen, after all. And right on the way up to the north was Lindisfarne. Given how most scholars believe that there was a large number of unrecorded raids during this era, and given how Lindisfarne was something of a famous site for raids, being that it was the first major Viking strike in the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, I can't help but wonder if Halfdan and his men took advantage of the situation and hit Lindisfarne on their way up to Pickland and Strathclyde. What's a road trip without picking up some junk food along the way? And the supposed protector of this area was Rick Siga, who was unlikely to help given that he had just likely submitted to Halfdan. But whatever happened, the monks had enough, and they took Cuthbert on his final traveling holiday. 
Meanwhile, in the south, the kings of Mercia and Wessex might not have been engaged in war, but they were certainly staying busy. King Cholwulf II of Mercia had acquired a bankrupt kingdom. Successive Danegelds and the repeated occupations of royal towns had reduced the Mercian economy to rubble. The kingdom would need to be rebuilt. And to ensure that his hold on power remained secure, he would also need to make sure that his coffers were replenished. And Cholwulf went about this in the classic Anglo-Saxon way. By extracting funds from the people who didn't matter, and then redistributing them to ensure the loyalty of those who did. So, we start to see records of Cholwulf II seizing lands from the church and others. We've seen the House of Wessex do almost this exact same thing when their kingdom was on the ropes. And that might have been where Cholwulf got the idea. But whoever gave him the idea, this need for money in order to make gifts to powerful thanes and eldermen is likely why all of a sudden we read of the Bishop of Worcester having to give up a chunk of his lands to the crown. Though Cholwulf was no fool. He needed money, but he didn't want to piss off God too much while making it. So he took the lands for a limited duration. The lands would only be in his possession during his life and the lives of his children. After that point, the lands would then go back to the church in exchange for a good word being put in for their souls. And that takes some stones, doesn't it? You take church lands, and then you act like you're doing a magnanimous gesture by saying that it'll be given back after two generations, but only in exchange for a better plot in heaven. That's not even robbing Peter to pay Paul. That's more like robbing Peter and then selling him his stuff back at a premium. And given how common this move was starting to become among the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, I'm starting to wonder about the power of the church in Britain at this point. I mean, can you imagine Bishop Wilfred putting up with this? And Cholwulf wasn't just running a spiritual reverse mortgage scam. He was also reforming his currency. Well, sort of. Alfred was reforming his currency. And it appears that Cholwulf was sort of following along. And while this does sound a little bit boring because we're talking about currency, what was going on with these coins actually tells us a great deal about what was happening in the South. The thing is that all this warfare and instability had led to unscrupulous people mixing in lesser metals into the West Saxon and Mercian coins. And that had cascading effects upon the economy of the South, and none of them were good. But by issuing a new coinage, and one that restored the purity and weight of the West Saxon and Mercian coins, Alfred and Cholwulf could start to repair the Southern economy. And honestly, having a debased currency wasn't just hindering trade due to inflation. It was also holding back Alfred and Cholwulf's prestige. Because if their coins couldn't be trusted, then traders would look to other coins to be used. And that would mean that their names and faces wouldn't be in the pockets of their subjects. Coinage wasn't simply a way to pay for stuff. It was a physical manifestation of royal power. Alfred knew this all too well, and it's for that reason that he didn't just restore the coins. He also made sure that the appearance of the coins would reflect his authority. For example, it was during this period that he issued the cross and lozenge style coin. And try and say cross and lozenge ten times in a row really fast. It's not easy. But anyway, 
That style of coin was an imitation of the classic Roman styles. He was hearkening back to Rome, and I don't think for a second that he did that by accident. And it wasn't just the style of the coins that allowed Alfred to express his authority. While the coins were released in tandem with King Cholwulf, Cholwulf's coins simply styled him as Rex, meaning king. Meanwhile, Alfred was listed as Rex SM. It was stamped onto a lot of his coins. And scholars believe that the SM translates to Saxons and Mercians. So he was saying King of the Saxons and Mercians. And if that wasn't clear enough, there are other coins that refer to Alfred as Rex Anglorum, the King of the English. So it seems clear to me that he was using these coins to reinforce the impression that Mercia, even if it was being ruled by a puppet king that was friendly to the Danes, was still a sub-kingdom of Wessex. And the title of Rex Anglorum is fascinating, and it's a sign that Alfred and his court were experimenting with concepts of identity. Rather than simply being West Saxons, Mercians, East Anglians, or whatever, now Alfred was introducing two new words into the lexicon, Anglorum and Anglican. He and his court were framing the conflict with Halfdan as not a conflict between nobles, but as a clash of cultures. And he was bringing all the people of the former Heptarchy into a single people. Asser even describes Alfred at one point as king over, quote, all the Christians of the island of Britain, end quote. So with these coins, we're starting to see tangible evidence of Alfred's efforts of forming a unified cultural identity. And through Asser, we see that this identity wasn't just linked to culture, it was also linked to religion. Alfred was demonstrating the degree of power that he had, and also how much power he was seeking. He was seeking all of it. And the production of these coins shows us that he was already making progress in that regard. For example, these coins weren't just produced in Greater Wessex. They were also made in London. That was Mercian territory. Or at least it was. By minting in London, we see further evidence of how Mercia was becoming a fragmented kingdom. To the extent that the Danes had influence over Mercia, it appears to have just been taking place mostly in the north of the kingdom. Looking at the place names and other indications, it's relatively agreed upon that Lincoln, Nottingham, Derby, and Leicester were thoroughly within the Danish sphere. But signs of Scandinavian influence drop off sharply once you move into southern Mercia. And here, with these coins, we are already seeing signs that Wessex was incorporating those territories into their sphere of influence. The era of Mercia as a unified and powerful kingdom was over. And that leaves us with Guthrum. He and his army moved into Cambridge in 874. But what were they doing in 875? Well, not much. He appears to have stayed on in Cambridge. Oscatel and Anwen disappeared from the record during this period, so the long break on the East Anglian border might have had something to do with a power struggle within the southern Danish army. But whatever the case, Guthrum and his forces 
largely just sat there. Though it does appear that some new arrivals from Denmark were coming to join him. And that seems to have caught Alfred's attention. And so he ordered scouts to keep an eye out for groups of longships. And by the summer of 875, so right about the same time that Halfdan was neck deep in the Picts, word reached Alfred that a fleet of seven longships were off the coast of Wessex. The House of Wessex had long ago learned the importance of building ships. And Alfred already had a sizable fleet under his command. His older brother, King Athelstan of Kent, had found glory winning a famous battle off the coast of Sandwich with that fleet. And now, it was Alfred's turn. We're told by Asser that Alfred launched his fleet under his personal command, apparently taking the Danes completely by surprise. We aren't given detailed accounts of these naval engagements, but based upon the way the Anglo-Saxons and the Danes fought, what you're probably looking at here are ships rowing and sailing towards each other, maybe ramming a bit, and then, after maybe a short volley of missile weapons, engaging in a brutal hand-to-hand fight as they boarded each other. But the thing that I keep on wondering about when I think about these fights is how well-armored they were. Fighting without any armor seems like begging for trouble. I mean, anyone can stab you at that point without much worry. But on the other hand, I doubt that you'd want to wear too much armor. I mean, this is a period where Alfred's personal guards were probably wearing things like chainmail burnies. But at the same time, even leather armor would be heavy and would run the risk of pulling you down once it became waterlogged if you fell into the sea. And here's the other aspect of this. Even during the Age of Sail, you had sailors who didn't know how to swim. So you have to wonder whether or not Alfred's naval furred were adept swimmers, in addition to being gifted rowers and fighters. This fight must have been terrifying on a whole variety of levels. But in the end, the West Saxon fleet was victorious, and they even captured one of the longships. This was an incredible turn for the kingdom. Alfred had taken the West Saxon throne only four years earlier, and within a few months of him being crowned, he ended up losing a war with Halfdan. I'm sure that some of his nobles, particularly the ones in Kent, were less enthusiastic about this sickly and bookish son of Athelwolf. But in the years of peace that followed, Alfred had used his time to great advantage. He was making enormous strides at repairing his devastated economy. He did what was necessary to ensure that his nobles were loyal to him. And now, he was even taking the fight to the Danes in their own territory. The sea. Alfred got the throne simply on virtue of being the last man standing. But now he was starting to demonstrate just what could be accomplished when a leader understands the meaning of the power that they hold. And if his court had any doubters in it, they were beginning to eat crow. And as for Guthrum, well, losing seven ships of reinforcements was unfortunate. But it also wasn't the end of the world. He still had his army. And now, he had a reason to fight Wessex. Because even if he felt that he was bound by Halfdan's Danegeld in the promise of friendship, thanks to Alfred's quick and masterful attack, whatever remained of that peace now lay at the bottom of the English Channel. It was time to start making plans. X gonna give it to you. What? Wait for you to get it. 
If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at the British History Podcast at gmail.com. And please come join us on Twitter. We're at British Podcast, and links to all our other communities can be found on the upper right hand corner of the British History Podcast.com. Thanks for listening. No matter how many cats I break,